And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Flip there with me, if you would. It is 976 in the Bible around you. It's the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. So I have been reflecting and meditating on a certain story this Advent season, and particularly as it relates to our series in Delighting in the Trinity of Advent. And that is a story and a world that my children have been introduced to and inviting them to, which is the wizarding world of Harry Potter. And the older two can now finally hang with tracking with the story and in this story, we see Harry, a young boy who lives under a lie. And he lives under this sense that he is not who he actually is. In fact, he is shoved under the cupboard, under the stairs. That's where he lives. And because it's a children's story, like, Harry just kind of accepts this, and it's no problem, and I didn't like the Dursleys anyway, and that's not really a problem for me. But we know that if this was like an actual real-life scenario of a child being neglected at this level, it wouldn't be just a boy just being joyfully aloof or somewhat disinterested. But someone who's experienced that kind of neglect would be extremely identity-shaping, and you'd begin to believe things about yourself and the reality of the world that you inhabit. But in the midst of this story, Harry is in a world in which we find ourselves, which is that we live in a world that we believe a lie. We live in a distorted reality of who we are and what we are in. Because we tend to live like what Patrick Carnes, who is a leading thinker on addiction, and he writes prolifically on this and has for the last, going on 30, 40 years now. And he notes that there's a very common thing about those who are in the midst of addiction, and that they are, believe foundational realities, and that is that they are unlovable, and that they are unloved. Or he says it like this, generally addicts do not perceive themselves as worthwhile persons. 
nor do they believe that other people would care for them or meet their needs if everything was known about them. Again, the other language he uses is that we fundamentally believe we are unloved and unlovable. But again, going back to the story of Harry Potter, all of a sudden you have a boy who is in this situation, under a lie of who he is in the world that he's in, and all of a sudden he starts to sit, get letters. And he starts to get these introductions from another reality that says, you actually are invited into something much bigger than the world that you've known. And then the letters keep coming and coming, and because the Dursleys, the family he lives with, continues to cause him to avoid and not see and not be able to read the letters, eventually Dumbledore, McGonagall, Hagrid, and if you don't know who these people are, just generally know they're wizards. And they come together and they hatch a master plan to pursue after and to rescue Harry and to bring him out of the reality that he finds himself in. And then as they do, they introduce him into this place where all of a sudden he finds this, this deep family connection of love with his friends, the Weasleys, and he finds as he walks down the street that people not only don't despise him or think nothing of him, but they come and shake his hand and they get tearful because he is actually a foundational piece of this community that joyfully loves one another. And bringing that to this idea of where we are in this series. Because we've been in this series of delighting in the trinity of the Advent, and we've been reflecting on the idea that we tend to live under the same lie. I'm guessing you would get the answer right if I just passed out the test of, does God love me, true or false? You could probably answer that accurately. But the reality of which you live under, of a constant sense of stress and anxiety, a constant sense of fear of impersonator syndrome, and your reflection on your own value, your own body image, testify to a very different reality. They testify to a very different reality of what I believe about myself, about the reality that I tend to function in. And so similarly, in this series, reflecting on that the advent, the coming, is a story of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit coming together to mastermind a plan in which to break through the lie that you believe and introduce you into a reality that we all long for. And I don't know if you've experienced the deep family relationships or friendships, or maybe you've just seen them on TV. But for me, I saw them on the show Parenthood, which is a bit of a data reference, but I don't care. And in the show Parenthood, which is like any great Jason Kadem show, who is a showrunner who made multiple contributions to the TV world, such as Friday Night Lights or Rise, which the rest of the world did not seem as interested in it as I was, so we don't get to figure out what happened in season two of that one. But then in Parenthood, he does what he does in all of his shows, which is at one point in the episode, typically at the end, he sets a scene to music and the pacing slows down and the characters are moving in slow motion to the rhythm of an emotional song. 
And in parenthood, the scene would often be the characters around a table. And they would be enjoying one another. And they'd be laughing and, yes, teasing each other, but not like in the biting, satirical way of the way that you try to say the things you never could say to your family. But like in a way that like they are already recognizing that they live in a deep community of people who love each other. They feel secure in one another's love. And then there's times where they'll go out and they'll, again, do this slow motion music scene to playing baseball. And as they're playing, they come together and they encourage the young and the weak amongst them. And they enjoy this relationship that they have with one another. And that's fundamentally what we are trying to display about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit in the course of Advent, that they have been enjoying this level of joyful love and connection from before time began. And that the Father, Son, and the Spirit at one point in eternity past say, man, it doesn't make sense to have all of this joy and love and unity and to be this amazing and not spill it out and so eventually they just spill out in what becomes creation and not just creation in general of mountains and oceans and the Grand Canyon and the Marianas Trench but eventually it spills out into creating us to saying we want to create those who will be invited into our joy Because we watch shows like Parenthood or you experience that level of family connection of everyone truly feeling secure in one another's love as inviting because you were designed for it. And so, we, I I, I want this to be something that we reflect on constantly in this series and just, I've tried, I said this a few weeks ago when I taught and I want it to be regularly something we come back to. The Trinity is not primarily a doctrine to be understood. It is a reality to be experienced. It is a relationship in a community to be enjoyed. We said a few weeks ago, if you have had some analogy or metaphor or something that explained to you the Trinity, then you actually have received a false metaphor or analogy because there is no true human way for us to grasp the reality of something that is that transcendent and eternal. And so if you understand the Trinity, you finally said like, oh yes, I've received this metaphor, now I finally understand the Trinity, you by definition do not understand the Trinity. However, conversely, if you do not understand the Trinity, you actually do understand the Trinity. And so that is good news for you if you're sitting here in a place of like, I don't get it. Well, that means that you're actually tracking along. And that ultimately is the heartbeat of our series, is to look at each person of the Trinity and their role in the coming and their role in this plan and so two weeks ago, Bobby Barber was here from someone with West, and he reflected on what does it mean for the son's role in Advent, which is somewhat obvious. We talk about Jesus quite a bit. And then last week, Satchel taught on what, is it, what does it look like in the Spirit's role in Advent. And then I have the joy of this week of leading us in a saturation of truth about the Godhead of the Father. And when we think of the first person of the Trinity, I don't know what you typically assign to this person. Typically, we sit, like, go to like, really lofty, uh, high-level, glorious terms, such as 
the Alpha and Omega or the Ancient of Days or the Great I Am, which actually those titles all refer to the entirety of the Godhead and not just specifically the one first person of the Trinity. So I don't know how you reflect on the first person of the Trinity, but the way that the first person of the Trinity reveals themself, himself, however you do that, because he's not actually a male, but in this way that we're reflecting on a design or a type, he says, I want you to think of me like a father. And again, the first person of the Trinity is not male. He has not made man to image him more specifically than he's made woman to image him, as he says in Genesis, but rather he's saying, no, this is a type. This is something that I want you to get because in their time, they got specific images when they thought about what is a father. And we get specific images in our culture when we think about what a father is. That we think of a father is an origin. That in their time, all genealogies always start from here is the father who had this son and then he has the father of this son and this is the father of this son because the way that they understood where this family all traces themselves back to was this originating father and that was how they viewed just where your family and your lineage and your dynasty if it grew to that from. And God in Ephesians 3 is said, hey, you is actually the father where every family draws its name, that he is the father of all things. And not just the originator of all families, but he's the originator of, again, all of creation of a joyful abundance. And so we see a father gives the image of origin, but the father also gives an image of power. We talked about in the Imago Day series, that if you there are a lot of ways that we say, what does it mean to be male and female scripturally? And a lot of it that we draw from it is probably fairly cultural. But one thing that it displays over and over of what does it mean to be made in the image of the male image of God is that men are created physically stronger. They're not spiritually stronger, not intellectually stronger, not emotionally stronger, no, by any means, but physically stronger with noted exceptions, but generally that's the rule. And so when you think of a father, you're meant to think of someone who has strength and power that are able to use their strength and power to protect the vulnerable and to serve, to make themselves last so that the family would flourish. And so a father gives the image of origin, it gives the image of power and strength, it gives the image of authority. In this time, it's a patriarchal culture, and I don't know what you think about that, but there was no suffrage movements to be had, because that was just the way that it was. And because of that, if you were the patriarch of the family, all of the resources, all of your power of the family, all of the land, everything belonged to you, and you gave it to the firstborn son, who then took care of the family after you passed. And what this image is to say, hey, this is someone who has all things, that everything is his, that he as a father owns all the land, all the resources. And then lastly, a reflection of what a father meant to them and what it should mean to us is it speaks of a father's love. I remember when we had our first child uh, in 2014, and a friend and a mentor, who was formerly a member of uh, Soma, he was at Soma Midtown, uh, emailed me 
And after, you know, going through the initial, like, you know, day of being in the hospital, I get back, I'm checking my email. And he sends an email where just, you know, generally saying, hey, you know, we heard and congratulations and we're excited for you. And then he just, the rest of the email was just one line. He said, the Father's love will be different to you now. And you reflect on that in this moment of like holding a baby and they do the thing where they grab the finger like really tighter than you thought they could do at their age and you reflect on this idea that when you think of a father, you think of someone who loves his kid. And when God says, hey, I want you to think of me in the first person of the Trinity as Father. Yes, I want you to think of me as powerful. Yes, I want you to think of me as the origin of all things. And I want you to think of me as the authority of all things. And I want you to think of me as someone who actually loves you. Again, you can probably intellectually understand that. But the amount of, I don't know if you're like me, but I don't tend to wake up in a sense of secure joy and peace. I tend to wake up in more melancholy or stress or I got to get working and get clipping today because tomorrow's done and today's in, or yesterday's done and tomorrow's not promised. And I'm guessing I'm not alone. And so I also want to recognize some of us don't experience that for a very specific reason. And it's because some of us have had very poor examples of earthly fathers. And it's impossible for us in not some way to impute that onto our image of a father and God. And maybe for some of you, it's because you had a very abusive or absent father who just was always at work or always maybe just left at some point in your life and just was never fully present. Maybe you had an, anti an antagonistic father. And for whatever reason, he lived under the lies that he was unloved and unlovable, and he passed that forward because there was a sense of real anxiety that he was living under. For some of you, you had great fathers, and you had a wonderful father that loved you well, but he's just gone now. Maybe he's passed away, and, or maybe that's something you've reflected on regularly for years, or maybe that's the first time that you're reflecting on. And bless the idea that some of us, again, have had not perfect fathers, but good fathers who regularly told you they loved you and they provided for you and they desired to communicate the idea that they loved you, their child. And praise God for that. But even in that, there still lies a deep fundamental desire for love that is not satiated by simply your earthly father, because it's meant to point you forward to something else that you were made for. And so I want to reflect just what we read on Ephesians and pull out a few observations from there. Read it again with me. Ephesians 1, chapter 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons 
through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you've studied through the book of Ephesians 4, or if you've heard a teaching on Ephesians 4, you know it's obligatory that we have to point out that chapter 1 is all one long run-on sentence, because Paul is trying to communicate something to you that, like, he's so excited he can't figure out where to put punctuation in. But also, he's doing it intentionally because he wants it to feel like when you're out in the ocean and you get hit by a wave, and then right as you're trying to, like, stable yourself from that, you get hit by another wave, and that one is really, okay, now I'm in trouble. And then the third wave, you're, like, calling for the double red flag because he's trying to crash phrases over you like that he chose you. And that he set, he predestined you. That means he set a destiny for you and that he lavishes in his joy love upon you. And that's meant to counter this sense of I have to figure out how to make myself lovable, whether it's in a secular sense or in a Christian sense, of I need to get busy doing more, evangelizing more, being better in order to make myself fully in the love of God. Because John, reflecting on the same thing in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says, hey, see what great love the Father has lavished on so that we should be called the children of God, and that we are. I love that we are, by the way, because it's like he's writing it, and all of a sudden it just like hit him again. Like, see what great love we have, that we're the children of God, and we are, which is awesome. Like, it's like he's trying to communicate it, and it re-stirs him with this reality that see what great love the Father, the God of everything has, that you are called his child. And so, I just want to, again, take a moment to make a few observations of what does the Father's love look like for us so that we might saturate in something that counters the lie that you tend to probably wake up with on a daily, regular basis. And so a few things to reflect on in what the Father's love looks like. It looks like this. The Father's love, you see from this text and others, is protective. So in ancient myth, in all religions, in all societies in history, the most terrifying image has been the sea. The sea is always depicted, and even in Scripture, as the introduction of chaos, of the inability to have security or fear and anxiety. It's always described as being in the midst of the sea, but you setting my feet upon the rock in the midst of chaos, basically, is that image that you'll hear in certain psalms or things like that. And then in the midst of the sea, there is a creature that all of ancient societies saw as some called them the Leviathan, or they call it like the Kraken, or there would be all this name for it, but there would be this creature in the sea that represented the heart of the chaos and the heart of danger. And all religions have their God telling a story about fighting up against the Leviathan and going in this epic mortal battle in which they vanquish and show their power. But the book of Job says that God created Leviathan to frolic. It's like he's saying, hey, the most 
fearful depiction of your God overcoming someone and fighting them to show his power is like God's rubber ducky. And he's like, there's Leviathan. Like, he's just, look at him. Like, he's just swimming around in there. Let him go. He's fine. Because he's trying to say that this is why Christians throughout all history could stand up to the empire of Rome. Hebrews says that some were sawn in two. They could be lit on fire to light Nero's parties because they recognized that they had a deep, protective love of the Father, that there's not a sparrow who falls out of the sky without him knowing. And so if it was not their day to go, then they had no reason to fear all of the power of the Roman government. And they also knew that God's love is protective, that even if he chooses to allow them to suffer or even to be killed, because I don't know, I mean, I know for myself, I was like, yes, I understand that God's love protects me and he won't let me fall, you know, a sparrow fall out of the sky. But the reality is, is they also got like son and two and he might, you know, let that happen to me or at least maybe like let me lose my job or lose this key relationship or something like that. But these people were so saturated in the idea that no, God's love is protective, that if there is suffering that comes upon me, then the only logical explanation is that he allows it because he loves me, because he's desiring to protect me from some far worser fate, which is to go through this life as a soul that believes I do not need him and is functionally incurved towards myself. Because I talk about all the time, you see those really deep, rich souls, people that like in their 70s, 80s, 90s, and they're just like, you can tell they are a person who has dwelt in deep waters and that they live in this completely non-anxious, non-stressed level of freedom. And you see that and you're like, man, I'd really, I would kill to live in the level of freedom that they do. And then you see the road, how they got there, and you're like, not so much, because the way of getting to that is through the path of suffering. And often, yes, the chaos of the world which did God create and put upon you, no, but he will bring a redemptive edge from. He will bring life out of your deepest, deepest desires, your deepest seeking, because God's love ultimately is protective. The love of God you see as protective. Secondly, you see it as a celebrating love. I love it in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. It says this. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior. I don't know. Is this for you? Yeah, no worries. All right, Zephaniah, chapter 3. It says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior, that's that strength, who saves you. And he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. And later in Zephaniah, it says that when you come into his presence, you become quiet. So the inner critic in your head that is constantly telling you to do more, to be better, that you're not safe, that you're not secure, is not from the Father. It's from the father of lies. But that when you are actually in an experience of God's love, celebrating over you, your soul's quiet. 
But he's not quiet. It says that he's singing. It's the same image of the prodigal son. When the son says, hey, I would love my inheritance because I want to go and you're as good as dead to me and so give me everything that I have now. And he goes and he spends all his money and he realizes eventually that he has nothing and he's eating the slop from pigs. And so he says, eventually I should go back to my dad because at least I could be like a hired hand. And when the father sees him yet a long way off, he does what at that time was considered indignified for a father to do because a father you don't go to someone if you're the father you're the patriarch they come to you that is a display of their respect to you and their power but yet while he's a long ways off the son the father runs and he throws him a party because he's celebrating over the fact that his son is home when i think of celebrating love i think of um I think of going to the pool. Um, I've said before, I'm from Nebraska, and every summer I vacation for about two weeks in Lincoln, Nebraska, where vacation dreams are born. And at vaca vacation there, we actually do have a really sweet setup in my grandparents' house. It has, it's huge, it uses square footage like a state that has room to spare can. And it has backs up, it has a pasture and a horse stable that used to have horses. They don't currently keep them anymore because they're in their 90s now. But regardless, we used to grow up and riding the horses. And it has this beautiful park that's like kind of like Southeast Way Park if you've been out there. Like it's huge and expansive. You can get lost in it for days. And they also have a pool. And each year we go and essentially just, you know, arrive and put our kids in swimsuits and throw them in the pool for two weeks. And while they're there, and every time they get there, every year, of course, the number one thing they want is they want to grab my attention and say, hey, Dad, look at me. Watch this. It's the same, by the way, if you just walk in. Like, if a dad comes to any pool, if you just, all the kids go to the public pool, and Dad comes in. I mean, God love you mothers, because you got them dressed in their swimsuits, and you got all of the snacks packed up and the pool furniture packed up, and you collected all the floaties, got them in the car, realized you forgot floaties, went back. We're driving there again. Someone screams that the youngest has peed in their swim diaper, and it's spilling out of their chair like a fountain, and then you get there and you lather them with sunscreen for like 45 minutes because you have to do it one at a time. And the second that any of them are done, they start immediately asking if they can go in. And then once you have them all in and you throw them in the pool, you're constantly vigilant the entire time so no one will drown. But now, Daddy walks in and we're taking it up a notch because now it's a party. And because when Daddy comes again, the first thing is they want you to watch me. So look at me, look at me daddy, look at me do a pencil dive, which is just going straight with your feet down. Or watch me roll over like a log, or watch me see how I can do a somersault backwards and now forwards. And when they come up coughing and sputtering, the first thing they see, say to you is, did you see that? Did you see that? Did you see me? And they want to go over and over and over for hours. And what they want more than anything is for their fathers to look at them and say, you're amazing. Look at you. Like you couldn't even swim last season and now you're like touching the bottom and you're coming back up. You are wonderful to me. And I am so proud of you. Because a father's love, it celebrates. A father's love challenges. 
my children break everything that we own. And um, the first three are boys, and you see them up here, and they have just a lot. I mean, they're all like 17-month, 18-month gaps. And so you can hardly stop one of them or repair the thing that one of them has broken before the other one breaks it again. And we're really grateful that we had the daughter because you realize, I mean, even she's like raised by them. So you come up and the, the drywall's dented in and she's like drawing on everything. But still, at least you recognize that like not every kid comes out like a little Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit, you know, who wants to break something tonight. And they have some level of restraint, at least if they're female. But either way, they, they do break everything, and I, I would like it to stop. I, I am trying to engender an environment in which they can recognize that there are financial consequences to the things that they break that actually reflect upon the things that they want later in life or even now because the budget is going towards repairing the drywall they're denting in and laughing about. Like they just have that moment where they like laugh, you're like, that was awesome, wasn't it? And you have to take them aside and you have to say, hey, we, we love you. We love you far more than the new leather ottoman. And, and because you have introduced chaos into the world, you do need to reflect on the fact that consequences now will have to be paid. So you have to rake our downtown lot as if that was somehow an even financial trade. And, but still reflect on the idea that there is consequence because I want them to be those who recognize, yes, if I continue to sow seeds of chaos, then I will reap a field of chaos, and I cannot continue to live like this. Because, yes, children will buck and fight against every single rule given. Mine do. But if you do the opposite, if you don't give them any boundaries, if you give them no consequences, eventually they intrinsically understand no one cares what I'm doing. No one cares if I'm safe. No one's worried about me. Kids on an intrinsic level do understand that if I'm saying to you, you can't continue to live this way, or yes, if you never change, I will continue to love and I will continue to celebrate over you and I will be showering you with love and natural consequences so that you can eventually learn that how to interact in this world with wisdom. And they understand intrinsically that there actually is a sense of love to confrontation, to confronting, to saying, hey, I love you as you are, and I want to put you forward. Because if there's a way to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, I would like that. I would like to dial up the notches in my soul on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And so a father's love does challenge. And then a father's love pursues. If you were alive and cognizant of current events in the 80s, uh, you probably remember baby Jessica McClure and the rescue of baby Jessica. 
But if you were not, uh, what essentially happened was that a infant, 18 months old, in Midland, Texas, was playing, I believe, at her grandparents' house and in the backyard, and just as you do in Midland, Texas, falls down a well. And because that was something that you could do in the 80s, because you know you didn't have a kid on a constant vigilant leash. And so this baby girl, 18 months, falls down a well. And of course, once the parents come out and realize it's true, they begin to dig. And they start digging for her. And essentially, or eventually, the neighbors kind of get word that something's going on. And so the neighbors come out and they realize what's going on. And so as the parents dig to the point of exhaustion, they begin to dig. And then as the neighbors start communicating to other people what's going on, people from all around the block start to come dig. And eventually, people from all over Midland, Texas, are digging through the night. And you set the bring out cranes and lights and spotlights so that as one group of men who are grown to complete exhaustion finally tap out, another group of men come and start digging, and they continue to dig for 56 hours because they said they could hear her still singing nursery rhymes. And so as they continue to dig out, that's two days and eight hours to spare, eventually media coverage is going from, I mean, the entire nation gets gripped with this story. And Ronald Reagan, the president at the time, said that every father and mother became godfathers and godmothers to baby Jessica. And there's the moment when they realize they're getting close and they're about ready to be able to get open up and, and tr attempt to transfer her out. And they're doing this, and the place is surrounded by the entire town, but yet everyone is in hushed silence because this is actually a really vulnerable moment so that the tunnel wouldn't collapse, and they had to be a lot of communication. And there was a photographer who, because he couldn't get close enough to get a shot, climbs up one of the lifts in the neighbor's yard. And the picture that he takes wins the Nobel Prize is a picture of an elation and joy of a community that had received their daughter. Because God didn't just say, well, you fell in a well. And you got yourself in there, you get yourself out. The love of a father pursues. He stays up all night and he continues to dig and continues to go after, and he sets together a plan before the time began to predestine you so that when you fell in a well and became as good as dead, that he could bring you out and put you into a delighting community of love that has existed and that you were designed for. And so he figures out a plan where he says, I will give my son so that my sons and daughters can receive the fullness of the blessing. That's what it means, by the way, when it says that you receive the blessing of the firstborn son. Sometimes you're like, wait, why is it the firstborn son and not sons and daughters? Again, it's not trying to be like gender specific. It's trying to give you a type that the firstborn son was the one who received the full blessing. 
And so regardless of who you are, you're not someone who just comes in as like, you know, the third or fourth son or daughter who then has to be taken care of, the one who gets the whole blessing, that you receive the full blessing of Jesus, the firstborn son. So in this, you say, okay, well, that's great. Um, this has been a wonderful reflection in the midst of a busy month. Um, but how do I actually, you know, apply any of that? Because I know myself enough to know I can sit in the love of the Father for a moment and completely fall out of any sense and be completely anxious and stressed and lonely by the time tomorrow or next week or something rolls around. And maybe Christmas gets me through, but then eventually it's just January and it's dark and everyone's depressed and not in having to diet and stuff. And I would say two things. Of, these are things I actually brought up a couple weeks ago, but I want to just bring them up repetitively as just ways of reflecting in the fact that we are actually living under a lie that we can pierce through and are actually made for and invited into currently the Trinitarian community of eternal love and joy. One of them is just, I brought up a few weeks ago, the idea of imaginative prayer. Something that people have been doing now for generations of just taking time in prayer to just reflect on the fact that you are loved by the Father. To sit in the joy and love of Him. Mother Teresa was once quoted by saying that she prayed every morning and they said, okay, when you pray every morning, what do you say? And she said, nothing, I just listen. And then they said, okay, well then what does God say? And she said, nothing, he just listens. And if you don't understand this, I cannot explain it to you. But imaginative prayer is one way to reflect on it of intentionally trying to form just, I mean, it doesn't have to be an hour, it doesn't have to be 10 minutes, it can be just a moment in the midst of the stress of a busy day, just taking a moment, breathing deep, and sitting in the fact that you are loved, enjoyed, and pursued by a Father who loves you. But then secondly, that the way that we experience primarily the love of the Father is in the body. That we are constantly calling you to not just be a part of a Sunday gathering, but to be part of a community that is meant to image the love of God toward one another. Meaning that when you do fail or you do just sin against uh, your brothers and sisters, the people in your MC, I don't know, you mess up, you get fired, whatever happens, that then the community around you doesn't push away from you, but pushes towards you. In the, minute, in the midst of reflecting on your body image issues, it doesn't push away but moves towards you in your vulnerability and begins to, with experience after experience of reflecting a father's love to you, begin to slowly rewrite the narrative that you have in your head that you are unloved and you are unlovable. And so in our church body, in discipleship groups, in missional communities, in relationships in general, we continue and will constantly, Scripture says, be the reflection of the love of a Father toward one another. And it's something that we want to continually keep inviting and deepening ourselves as we talk about all the time that we form ourselves into the image of Jesus in community, for our community. And so one way that we can reflect on this tangibly 
is in communion. And each week we take communion as a small moment and a small space to reflect in an imaginative prayer style of the fact that you are so loved, that God so loved you, that he didn't just begrudgingly, I should do this because I'm glorious and I'm God. No, Ephesians 1 says that in his joy, he set a destiny for you. So that in this moment, we reflect that God loved you so that he gave his son and that Jesus' body is broken, represented by the bread, and Jesus' blood is shed, represented by the cup, in order to pursue you and bring you back. And so the moment there'll be stations here where you can tear the bread off, dip it in the cup, there'll be a gluten-free section here in the middle. We invite you to come down the center aisles. If you are a Christian, if this is your confession, if this is your hope and your reality, then come, receive this. If you are not a Christian, then we invite you to stay where you are. There's nothing weird about that, and we're glad that you're here. But come forward, tear the piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and return in the outer aisles. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I, I pray in the midst of a crazy season that is the end of the year and is Christmas and is the just December rolling into obligations and feverish trying to get things done and trying to match expectations of previous years or doing things you want to do or things that you don't want to do or things your family wants to do that in that we could just have just a moment here to be through your spirit in your presence and to feel secure in the love of a father who has joyfully chosen, predestined, lavished us with his love. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.